Welcome to The Private Project. Hello everyone. In this episode, I speak with Jenny Mathiason, the owner of Curiosa Conservation and an objects conservator based in West Wales. She has a background in heritage management from Bournemouth University and a conservation degree from Cardiff University. For over 10 years, she has worked with archaeological units, parish churches, theatre companies and private collectors, artists and organizations, such as the University of Cambridge Museums. When she's not at her workbench, she can be found crafting or creating something, or in her podcast studio producing The C Word, The Conservator's Podcast. On a personal note, Jenny's show was an inspiration to me in creating my own podcast. I cannot recommend it enough, and there is a link to her podcast in this episode description. In this interview, Jenny and I discuss the landscape of conservation and the logistics of opening her business in the United Kingdom. We also talk about negotiating with private clients and discovering how far they truly wish to restore their beloved objects. And now, here's my interview with Jenny Mathiason. First of all, thank you, Jenny, for joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really chuffed to be here. <laughs> Let's begin with your background. How did you discover conservation? And can you briefly describe your journey to the private sector? Ooh, so I didn't really know conservation was a thing. Um, so I did science at school. Um, I'm Swedish. So in the Swedish school system, you're supposed to do, uh, or at least back in the day, I'm old now, Um we, ha- we had to do a work placement um, that we sort of arranged ourselves. And I, at the time, I was really into physics and astronomy and I wanted to be an astronomer. I loved history as well as science, uh, but I didn't really see a way of marrying the two. Um, so I was going to go hardcore science and then it fell through and short notice, I had to arrange a different placement. And I went to one of my favorite museums uh, and just sort of begged for anything that they had. And they were like, that's fine. You can spend a week with us. It's going to be okay. Um, and then like first coffee break when I'm there, right. Uh, a woman comes in with a lab coat and goes, have you thought about being a conservator? And I go, I don't know what that is, <laughs> but tell me everything. Um, and yeah, that's, that's how that started. Right. So that's how I found out what conservation was. <laughs> wow. Isn't that so funny how such a small moment or like a small choice can yeah. just alter the course of your life. I know, right? That's crazy. Wow. That's how that started. I've actually met her since she came to a conference that I was helping organize. Uh, and I was just like, I'm here because of you. And she was just like, it really, <laughs> <laughs> that seems extremely unlikely, but yep, there we go. That's, that's how it went. <laughs> that's so lovely. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So she comes up to you. Yeah. And she introduces the field of conservation. What's next for you? Well, I mean, I sort of went away and thought, okay, so there is something for me, right? Um, So I looked up where I could study. uh, And in Sweden, uh, because we've got a small population, there was one place that did it. And they sort of took in people for general objects conservation sort of every three years. And I just missed the intake. And I didn't really want to wait around for three years. So I decided to go to the UK. 
I slightly chickened out and did heritage conservation management for my undergrad, which was different. Uh, I'll be more about buildings and archaeology, but gave me some really good uh, experience of sort of the heritage sector at, at large. And then I did my two-year master's at Cardiff University, uh, which is sort of a, a conversion course, you could say, because it's sort of in the first year, you sort of do the whole undergrad in one, in one go, uh, sort of. And then you do your master's on top of it. So it's a very intense program. I was the first lot at that program. So uh, I always tell everyone that we were the guinea pigs uh, in that they were trying to see how much they could possibly put students through before they fall apart completely. Um, it's a great program, guys. I'm not trying to be scary. Uh, they, took, they took on board a lot of our feedback <laughs> about how intense it was. Um, no, it's, it's good stuff. Uh, yes, yeah, so graduated from there in 2012. And uh, then my first job was actually sort of commercial in that um, I helped a commercial unit uh, work on archaeology, uh, which was really, really great. So archaeological conservation, it was nice. Uh, and then I sort of project uh, hopped a lot where, you know, you get your first little contracts and you have to move a lot. And uh, yeah, just sort of job hopping my way through the country. Um, and then now in a brave new world called the post-pandemic world, I'm running my own business. I did freelance before, but it was sort of on on the not on the side because that sounds like I'm not prioritizing it that's not true it was always my career but it may have been alongside other museum work and sometimes other conservation work and now this is all I do this is this is what I do so now I'm more fully committed to being self-employed I run a business uh it's a limited company for those of you who are in the UK um and yeah that's that's sort of how that started really so I had an early taste of commercial work and then private practice has sort of matured. <laughs> I want to go back to Cardiff because I have a quick question. Yeah. When you were at university, were there different specializations that you could delve into? Was it mostly objects focused? What was that structure like? So uh, at Cardiff, they generally do, um, I think they call it archaeology museum objects. So it does tend to be quite objects based in general. Uh, and sort of doesn't really do different specialisms. You can still sort of ask for certain things because uh, everyone's given um, allotted objects uh, when they're there because it's a, it's a very hands-on and practical program, which is really mm -hmm. good, and which is why I chose it. And uh, you can sort of steer them towards, well, I'm really into Egyptology or I really like textiles. Then you can do a little bit of that, but it won't specialize you as such. It will mm. spit out a well-rounded object conservator at the end. That's, that's what it does. So it's not really a specialism sort of place, but it brings out the best of a general practitioner. Yeah, it sounds very intensive, especially given the fact that it's a two-year program. So it sounds like they work you very hard, but you come out well-rounded. They sure do. <laughs> they give you really good connections as well, which always helps because as a student, that's, of course, super important that you sort of get to know people and have a network and have an idea of what working life is like. And they're good at that. And can we also talk about the general landscape of conservation in the United Kingdom? How available are permanent museum or institution positions? Is it more likely that you're going to sort of jump from job to job because there's not a lot of full-time positions in institutions? I would definitely say that. It's not that 
they don't exist at all. They do. Uh, although I have to say the funding landscape of the British museum sector, not the British museum, uh, you know, just the UK <laughs> museum sector right. is very much that um, the funding has been slashed over many, many years and conservative posts tend to be the first ones to go. So if they're still available, then there aren't very many that are permanent anymore. So it's maybe not great from that point of view. Yeah, the permanent positions are few and far between, but they do still exist. So there's a lot of project work, which is, um, I think someone recently uh, described it as a portfolio career where you have loads of different little jobs, which I sort of enjoyed. Um, so it's it's much more likely that as a recent graduate that you're going to be job hopping and doing a lot of short term contracts, which is precarious and it's really hard work. Uh, and it, it, again, doesn't really help the diversity of the sector, because then again, we're back to people who can afford to do that and who can afford the precarity of that. Um, so those are those are issues they, I did actually have a permanent conservation job for a bit, but, uh, you know, so like they do exist. Um, so they're not completely, you know, unavailable or anything like that. So I don't know how that compares to America, if there are a lot of permanent jobs there, um, because because I've never worked in America. I think it's something similar. I would say that because perhaps it's a larger country with more institutions, maybe on paper there are more jobs available. However, I think it's very highly competitive. I think you have, even for assistant or associate conservation positions, you have people who've graduated over maybe five plus years, right? All gearing towards that one job. Yeah. So I think it's something very similar where there are some permanent positions, but it's highly competitive. There's limited availability um, and you might have to sacrifice where you're living and move somewhere else completely, which is always a factor. I've heard also offhand that American jobs seem to pay a little bit more than United Kingdom jobs. They definitely do. I can say that for sure. (laughs) That's very interesting as well. Is the cost of living do you think cheaper in UK? Does that explain that gap? Or is it just the funding has been slashed and some of these jobs are not sustainable? It's definitely more of a systematic slashing of funding over time. And it's not really keeping up, but it's true of the whole heritage and museum sector. It's not that conservatives are like, you know, like treated differently. It's just that, you know, generally there isn't that money sort of sloshing about. And that's not good, uh, obviously. Uh, but it is something that, you know, people are trying to campaign uh, to change and really trying to work on. So there is hope for it, um, definitely. But yeah, in general, UK conservation jobs are not well paid, uh, which may in fact be a factor to people trying to go into private practice. Are there any like organizations in the UK that have groups of people in private practice? The answer is sort of. Uh, So in the UK, we've got ICON, which is the Institute of Conservation. um, And that's our professional body. Uh, And I'd say that anyone you can find on their conservation register, they're accredited conservatives. They've gone through the accreditation process and usually they are in private practice. And you can tell from their listing on the register whether or not they work sort of in an institution or whether they work for themselves. Absolutely. One topic I'd like to cover in the future is negotiating for wages within conservation, right? I I Mm. get this almost impression that that's not an option. You can't come to an interview for a position and try to negotiate a wage, right? It feels like the amount that's been allotted for a position is set 
And if you don't like it, then someone else is probably going to take that job, which is yeah. very unhealthy. Um, but I, I just wonder if there's strategies or tips that you can use to talk with these institutions and maybe negotiate for better wages. I have no idea. That's a topic I'd like to, you know, discover in the future, but something I've been thinking about recently. I think that is a good topic and it's definitely one that you should try to explore. And I think, you know, sometimes it's, you know, if the landscape allows for it, then it might be a confidence issue that you might not feel confident enough to be negotiating. Uh, I think in the UK, often you sort of can't negotiate but then as a private practitioner if you're doing a project for someone then there are certainly salary guidelines and similar that you can bring out and wave in people's faces and go well we're not doing less than this because that's what the guidelines say and that can be really helpful as a way of getting a little bit more bang for your buck that's really interesting. Yeah. I do feel like in private practice, there's more of a negotiation, obviously, because you're having that with each client that you encounter. There's a topic of how much they're going to pay in budget. In my experience in America, people sometimes tailor their rates depending on the client. So if you have a very wealthy collector, sometimes they'll raise the fees a little bit versus a smaller institution that really doesn't have a lot of funds. Maybe they'll lower their fees a little bit to help them out. So I think there is a little bit more leeway in terms of pricing different conservation treatments versus, as we said, working in an institution where what you get is what you got. Yeah, I'd say so. I'd also like to go back to specialties in objects conservation. So after you graduated from Cardiff, were there any specializations within objects conservation that you found really interesting and wanted to explore? Mm. Or were you more just taking the jobs that were available? I mean, to a certain degree, I did take jobs that I knew I could do. You know, it wasn't really about, oh, this looks like a particularly juicy thing. Mm. Unfortunately not. Um, if it's taught me anything, it's that having a diverse skill set is actually a really big bonus. So that's been really good so the fact that I haven't been specialized has actually helped me a little bit in uh, being able to go for more jobs arguably uh, that being said I, everyone has favorites no one should pick a favorite child but everyone has some favorites it's always going to be more fun to work on one or two things and that's just how it is and I think for me it's a lot of I quite like natural history and I love Egyptology but that's because I'm a huge Egyptology nun so you know I'm very much an enthusiast those will always be my two favorite babies I think but that being said I do love working on all sorts of things and I love the variety of my job it's really really good I think I just really enjoy problem solving and sort of figuring that stuff out and that can be you know a textile or <laughs> a stuffed bear or <laughs> or someone's toy doll it doesn't it doesn't bother me so much you know like it's all of it brings me joy that sounds like a very object conservator thing to say that scares me honestly a little bit of all the <laughs> things that you have to learn but you make it sound so exciting it is exciting I swear I swear it is I really like that <laughs> that's so awesome okay so after Cardiff you're doing some project jobs what makes you want to go full private practice i mean in some ways it's circumstances so what what sort of happened was that um the job i was in which was a permanent position i knew was going to get slashed it wasn't going to survive the next budget cut and we just looked at what do we want to do with our lives if we don't stay 
here because it was quite a small town we were in like it, it wasn't necessarily a place where we would like be able to find jobs and stuff if we sort of lost that so we just sort of looked at what are we going to do so we decided to make a big move uh we moved somewhere that we've always wanted to move it's another little town but it's one that we really enjoy uh it's one where my other half has family connections and it just felt like okay now it's time to sort of look at that chapter of our lives and then he sort of took on the responsibility of being the breadwinner for a bit which I'd always been the breadwinner before so because he was in fact self-employed whilst I worked for museums for example and now we sort of switched and it was sort of the perfect time to do that so it meant that I could focus on my thing and really make this because it had been a dream for a long time actually make it come true and really run with it it was just a time of upheaval but in a good way you know a little bit like the phoenix rising from the ashes it's like okay well you know what we've got to move on what we're gonna do next you know what I'm gonna go solo So the little town that you moved to, did you have connections within the profession, people you knew were working there? Completely no. This is new territory. Um, Technically, it's not that far away from Cardiff where I studied. So Mm -hmm. there's within the country because the UK is several different countries. We lived and worked in England for a long time. And now we're moving back to Wales. Uh, So I did have some connections in Wales but it was mostly university based it wasn't really anyone near me particularly Uh, so it was completely new and that can be really really scary so uh, you know aside from the fact that I didn't really know anyone uh, it was also how do I make connections here how do I make this happen that was that was scary but in a really nice way because the thing about moving to a new area I guess is that you reinvent yourself you make the rules they don't know anything about you. You present yourself exactly as you would like. It sort of felt like I could be truer to myself and sort of go in and like, this is what I do. I'm a jack of all trades. Uh, I, I love working on all sorts of stuff. I love problem solving. Uh, hey, do you just want to hang out and have coffee? And that's sort of what happened. I just sort of found that the local museum had a conservator and I decided I'm going to be friends with this person. <laughs> If you're listening, hi, Joe. Um, and and yeah, it's, it's sort of just like, I just wanted to make friends, really. It wasn't mm. necessarily about finding business connections or anything like that. Ultimately, they have become that. But it was more about finding other people who were doing similar-ish things uh, in my local area. And gradually, like, I've found a bunch of people. I found them. <laughs> Trying stuff we're everywhere. Um and yeah, it's it's just been a really nice experience getting to know people. And sometimes people are in the same position as me, like moved over uh, sometimes more recently or like a few years ago and hadn't really found anyone or hadn't really like nothing had sort of taken root yet. And then we found each other and that was just really nice. So it's a nice uplifting little story in the middle of a pandemic to sort of just be able to connect to people and uh, sort of end up just having having coffee socially distanced picnics that sort of thing and just sort of generally um getting on yeah so it was a little bit scary but as it turns out and I knew this already conservatives are really friendly people <laughs> oh yeah very interesting so it sounds like you were able to find people 
who had similar interests in you in the area. Mm. What about the general public in Wales? Were they sort of aware of conservation? Was it something that you had to introduce to people um, in order to bring clients to your business? How was that landscape? I mean, arguably, this is a work in progress. And what I would say is that oddly, it's helped that there have been a number of sort of TV shows that have sort of helped bring this sort of stuff to the foreground. So there's been behind the scenes of the museum, which is sort of much more about big institutions and it's quite fancy, but it does show conservatives at work. So that's helped brace the public profile a little bit. And also there's a TV show called The Repair Shop, which is much more about restoration than conservation, but they do have conservatives on the show. And that has become a way to talk to people about what I do. Uh, So when people go, what do you do? I can go either I fix old things, which is always a nice way of starting a conversation, or I can go, have you ever seen the repair shop? What's a bit like that? And actually, (laughs) it's a huge, it's a huge boon. Like it's, it's amazing. This it's an instant in because people usually say yes. And then you've got something to talk about. And then they have an understanding, even if it might not be as, you know, as granular as I'd like it to be. Um, You know, sometimes it's like, oh, can you make things shiny and new? And it's like, I'd really rather not, actually. (laughs) I don't think you would enjoy it very much if I did either. So I think we should talk about that. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a big thing of private practice, especially if you have a client who hasn't quite formulated or has a complete understanding of what it means to be a conservator and the type of work that we do trying to advocate for our ethics, our practices, our approaches, and maybe negotiating sort of the goals of the treatment. Because there are some people who are very interested in a highly aesthetic finish, want it to look 100% brand new, which sometimes goes against our ethics. And then we have to have a conversation about that. But it, it sounds like you have an in with most people where they have at least a basic understanding of some of the aspects of conservation, which is so useful. It really is. Okay, so you have some connections with local institutions, and then how else do people find you and your business? Whilst technically, you know, I have a website and I'm on social media and that sort of thing, it still astonishes me that so much of this is word of mouth. And I I know that everyone says it, but it's so true, guys. It's just the amount of people that will come to you because someone knows you is so interesting. Sometimes that can be a client. It can be a client who's happy with your work and who just wants to pass that on. Or if someone has a similar problem, they're like, oh, you should go see this person. But also just other conservators, uh, sometimes they're quite far away. <laughs> sometimes they're literally on the other side of the of the country who are like, oh, don't you do this thing? Um, maybe go talk to her. Uh, and actually, it really works. It's It's such a nice thing that we're able to do that. I brought this up in like a local business hub sort of meeting because there's like networking things around here um, that are like women in business, that sort of thing. So the sort of women who are self-employed and running their own business can just talk and share experiences. And it's like a safe space. And it's also a nice way of getting to know people in your area, even if they don't do anything that's related to you. <laughs> uh, if you've got something in your area that's like that, do join it. It's great. Um, and I said that in conservation, we tend to refer work to each other. And and they were like, baffled. Really? You don't like snipe each other's work? And I'm like, no, that's not really how it works. (laughs) And they were just like, how? (laughs) And it's like, no, I think we're just way nicer than that. (laughs) And I've experienced this too, observing private practitioners that I work with. 
they're very good about understanding the boundaries of what they can and can't do. Yes. And so I've worked with paintings conservators who work on more historic artworks. So I work with the conservator now who works on more modern and contemporary, and they're very good at you know, if there's a painting that's sort of outside of the time frame that they're comfortable with, they will refer that work to one another. And I don't know if it's unique in conservation, but it seems to be reciprocal, right? Oh, absolutely. So if you have extra work and you pass it off to someone else, maybe next year you're looking for work and they have things that they can give to you. And it's sort of this mutually beneficial relationship that I think is a product of conservators just being very nice people and and very cooperative. It's it's one of the things I really enjoy about this field. Yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree. It's so nice. Let's talk about space. So where did you make space for your business and your lab? Oh, this is like a whole saga. <laughs> I knew that I didn't want it at home. So, you know, like just for context, um, we don't own our own house. So we rent and usually there are lots of stipulations with that, at least in the UK. Like, you know, you might be able to Mm. work from home, but you can't really do just anything. Um, You know, there might be insurance implications and all sorts of things with the landlord and stuff like that. So often they just say, don't do any business from home. And, you know, new to the area and stuff, we weren't in a strong position to say, hey, I just casually want to use loads of chemicals in one of your rooms. That's not really where it's at. And also, I didn't really want to, like, not just for work-life separation, but also because, you know, like, it's not a huge house. Mm. There isn't really a room I would want to sacrifice to have a workshop in uh, because we don't own it or any land. It meant that I couldn't do sort of the thing that loads of very helpful conservators said which was like oh just build a log cabin and have it in there or (laughs) and I'm like I can't build a shed let alone a log cabin there's no way I can make this happen so like it was a logistical challenge for sure so I knew I didn't want it at home um and that that just wasn't gonna happen I could still do sort of things if I work at my client's place that sort of thing like I could, I could do in-situ work and I could do consultation but I couldn't really work on objects and that annoyed me so I was on a mission to find a way of solving that and I was quite naive at the time because I started looking for like uh, sort of industrial unit and uh, maybe empty shops because there were quite a few of them I mean it was pandemic loads of businesses were just going out of business so ultimately there were a lot of empty shop fronts and stuff like that and sort of just trying to figure it out and at one point I was even ringing ringing up people with like disused offices and stuff like is there any way I could have some light use of chemicals and paints in a room if I promise not to make a mess and no one was going for it right People were not happy with the amount of mess that conservation could potentially create, even though 99% of the time it is not a messy job, at least not mine. But so I just couldn't really get anywhere with it. And then on a whim, I sent out an email uh, to someone who had a creative space, uh, which I was sort of unclear on what that even was. Um, and as it turns out, it was sort of like a makerspace type thing, but they also had offices like that you could rent individual rooms. Um, and in the end, he actually had a really good understanding, my, my now landlord, uh, of what conservation was, because he used to do a bit of restoration of musical instruments. So we actually had an appreciation of what I was doing, which was really helpful. And he said, well, you know, I'd like more creative people in here so you can have one of the rooms. So I now rent a room uh, above a makerspace uh, in the town, which is really, really lovely. And it's completely different from everything that I'd imagined that I would be doing. 
in a really healthy way, it made me let go of some preconceptions of what I think a conservation studio should be like or uh, what workspaces have to do. Ultimately, it does all of the things that I need to, right? It's secure. It's weatherproof. It keeps a constant temperature. It's accessible. Like those are sort, sort of the things that I need, right? Uh, ultimately, it doesn't need to be fancy. It doesn't need to be a place where I wow clients. No, they're here for my work. They're not here for to sit in a, like a swanky uh, <laughs> coffee table scenario where I have like a special, I don't know, waiting area for them to sit in when I take their object. No, it doesn't really matter. The main thing is that there's somewhere I can do my work. Uh, so I had to do a lot of like sort of reevaluating of what I thought a workspace should be. Uh, but I'm really happy with it. So I sort of went a very unusual route, I think, in that I'm sort of part of a, not a collective, because that's not quite what it is, but part of a creative workspace uh, in a sort of shared but not shared way. It's interesting. <laughs> now, that is really interesting. And I, what you said about reevaluation struck with me because in my interview with Lisa Duncan, we talked about like the grad school come down when you've worked in all of these mm-hmm. state-of-the-art conservation laboratories and then you come back to start your own business and you're working in your basement or you're working you know in and not one of these state-of-the-art laboratories and what is that like and you're right all you need to do is have a secure place where you can get the job done and it doesn't always need to be this stunning fancy laboratory it just needs to get the job done that's the most important thing it absolutely is but yeah it is something that I would sort of want people to take away is that it can look any way you'd like it to and if it's personal that's probably better I mean I don't know that we all need like a super clean sterile you know the white cube with the adjustable table maybe that doesn't work for you and that's fine like if you need it to look different that's great good for you mine's colorful like the walls are like lilac and there's a cupboard in the corner that's bright green. And I actually love it because I have blue hair. I sort of love color. This is, you know, like it, it works for me. Um, but it's definitely not what people maybe expect of a conservator or a conservator's workspace. But then, you know, we're just showing them a different way of doing it. That's fine. That sounds so lovely. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so <laughs> different from like these pristine like never been touched clean surfaces and that makes me think of something else too you talked about how it's kind of in a creative space already but were there any sort of modifications that you had to make to make it laboratory safe honestly it's been mostly fine more fine than I thought it would be to be honest um the landlord has loads of spare stuff kicking about he actually had two adjustable workbenches that I could just have and just in general he's just sort of hooked me up with like a lot of good stuff so in actual fact I sort of felt like I could just sort of go in and sort of pick the bits that I found most useful and then it's actually worked really well I think there have been things that haven't necessarily worked well and if I had if it was my space in a sort of a more permanent way I would probably change but that's most of the things like I'd have better air extraction like that would be nice but also you've got to work with what you've got as long as it's safe is there anything that you wish you had done differently you know what? I think I did the best with what I had and I'm pretty happy with that um so I think the only thing I wish I'd done was maybe that I'd I'd found him sooner. <laughs> I'd found the place sooner. That would have been nice. I only moved in in January. So uh, for a while, you know, it's been like that was 
what a good 18 months when I was just sort of doing things in situ and remotely, uh, which totally worked and it was fine. But I really missed having a workbench. You know, I missed all my tools. I think that was possibly the thing that sold it uh, to him actually was that I was just like, I just miss having my tools in one place so I can look at them. And But yeah, it's funny. It's funny. We're, we're creatures of habit sometimes. And it was just something about having all of my tools. Like it was like being reunited with friends, just being able to have them all in like one place and not have to unpack them. It was great. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought up tools. Um, and you're going to have to give forgive me because I'm not as familiar with objects conservation. And it sounds like you have a wide variety of the types of objects that you work on. But how did you sort of build up the tools and equipment that you use now? So a card, if you're sort of uh, given a, a basic set of tools, um, actually, I think technically you buy them before like a really cheap price. Um, and so it's your basic toolkit. And I still have that. Uh, so that's how it starts, right? That's how it starts. You get the tool roll and then it escalates from there. And I think after that, it was as things, uh, as I needed them, but also sometimes things were just being upgraded you know if I worked somewhere and someone was upgrading their equipment then there would suddenly be like a spare microscope that no one wanted and I would always be cheeky and say can I take that off your hands if you're if you don't need it anyway and more often than not people have said yes so I've acquired a lot of equipment that's just being not not quite chucked but is surplus to requirements and they're just happy to have the cupboard space back um so ultimately i i do have an awful lot of stuff that i've just sort of either found or been really thrifty about um and sometimes very literally found i found an ultrasonic cleaner in the rubble when a dentist was cleaning out their stuff and clearly upgrading the whole place right and I was just like can can I have this and they were like uh it's literally trash and I'm like it works <laughs> it came it came with a manual and everything and I was like I want to clean that up and you know like sometimes it's just about being slightly cheeky and thrifty and that's that served me really well a lot of my tools are second hand you know third hand whatever like very 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 pre-loved um and yeah sometimes you know someone someone retires and they're like, who wants my tools? And if there's no one about at their workplace who wants them, then they might put that call out wider. And sometimes that's how, that's how I've ended up with stuff that I have. What are your top five tools that you use? Oh, top five. Oh, I know wow. it's tough. <laughs> I mean, always my trusted scalpel handle. And I, I'm a number 15 girl. So it's if you, if you do like the little disposable um swan morton type blades then i'm a number 15 other than that i love a good makeup brush uh, a good makeup brush is to die for they are really really good uh, i don't think swabs count as tools because they're sort of disposable but i suppose technically the cocktail stick isn't or whatever it is you're using so i suppose a good wooden stick might be might be one and then supply your own cotton um God, a solvent pump is my lifesaver because I do use quite a few, you know, like solvents and stuff. That is absolute, absolute gold. Oh, um, and then honestly, it'll be something quite, quite boring, like, uh, like a good spatula, like a good metal spatula. That's where it's at, right? Like the one that's well worn to your hands and just sort of works. That that's a good one. <laughs> There's always one metal spatula I found that's kind of discolored and like doesn't look as fresh as the other ones. Yeah. But man, that spatula will get the job done. That's the best one to have. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
In terms of expansion, do you have a dream piece of equipment that you would like to get in the future? I mean, truly, I mean, the ultimate dream will always be to have a digital x-ray machine. Because how cool would it be to be able to x-ray things? That would be amazing. So cool. They are so expensive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they are so expensive. But that would be amazing. <laughs> slightly, a slightly more modest one might be uh, a Geiger counter. Because sometimes, you know, I want to check if something's radioactive before I touch it. Uh that would be super good and also because it it's the pro tip good service to to be able to offer as well just check if your stuff's radioactive or not because a lot of things are and people don't know um and that not in a like an alarming way they can just be mildly radioactive it doesn't have to be like super duper bad or anything but it's interesting to know about absolutely can we move on to bidding or charging how do you determine how much you charge a client? I would say that I break everything down into labor materials and transport, usually. Transport being if I need to go somewhere uh, or if the object needs to go somewhere, that sort of thing. Because I do sometimes go and see clients or I go and work sort of on site uh, or it might be the things have to be transported to me or be shipped from me if they drop it off, that sort of thing. So that's pretty obvious. And then I'm always really, really upfront with how much supplies cost uh, because materials are materials but you gotta pay for them <laughs> so that I'm very inflexible on price I am probably nicer than I should be I do have like an hourly set fee but there have definitely been times when I have decided to be a little bit cheaper because I know that someone just doesn't have that much cash or they vastly underestimate how expensive conservation is. But then it's usually a negotiation as well of expectations, um, sort of like, okay, so you want this done to 110%. That's not going to happen with the money that you have. I can meet you at 60%. I know that isn't ideal, but you know, that's, that's going to have to be where it's at because that's, that's what that money gets you. Uh, and then I'm, I am probably a bit more lenient then, you know, like I am probably thinking, okay, well, I'll knock a little bit off, but not so much that I can't meet rent, right? Because God, I meet my costs. Uh, so there are hard limits as well. But yeah, so I think I do negotiate a little. And also I'm quite nice about payment terms, which may or may not be a thing that people can be nice about uh, sometimes if it's like a private client and they're like I I can pay that but I can't do it in one go then we'll talk about installments and that sort of thing like that's totally fine but often you know it's an invoice that then doesn't get paid until you chase it three times that's the thing so yeah I think I'm I'm quite firm with institutions and a little bit more lenient when I know that someone is struggling but they sort of have to make me aware I don't naturally assume that people are struggling but if they make noises of not that they don't want to pay, but that they can't, then that is different. That is a different story. Um, I can't I can't work for free. That's usually my line is just that I can't work for free, but we can see what we can make happen on your budget. Yeah. And how do you prepare financially for like an injury, illness, emergency, say you injure your hand, you can't work for three months. Do you have savings set aside to cover that in case you can't work for a short period of time? Honestly, I live in fear of that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and this is something that we talked about ever since graduation. It's that all of us who did any sort of freelance work, we were always worrying about this. Like what happens if we injure ourselves and we just can't work? Like it's clearly an underlying worry for us, but it isn't one that I've actually heard anyone solve, which is sort of interesting. And this will be a little bit because the UK heritage sector doesn't pay very well. So 
basically it wasn't possible for me to have any savings uh, and I, I still don't to be honest with you so you know like I very much live on the edge here um <laughs> not to make anyone nervous or anything but yeah no uh on the bright side my other half uh does have a steady income so it wouldn't be a complete financial disaster and I'm sure my landlord would forgive me if I said I need extra time to pay my rent on my space um but it's not ideal uh when I set out to do this um the advice that I got from other uh conservatives in private practice in the UK was try to have a three-month buffer so definitely try to make sure that you have a cushion so that you don't have to you know live quite paycheck to paycheck that's not ideal because something might happen or you might even that someone forgets to pay that invoice and then it'll be another month before you pay it you know like it does help and I wish I could say I had that but I don't uh so honestly I just try to be real careful <laughs> but I don't recommend that way of living <laughs> And I see that you also offer exhibition services, disaster planning and prep. So it sounds like if worse comes to worse too, there are other services that maybe don't require hand skills that you could advertise, maybe get some gigs that way. Yes, definitely. It would be fine. Uh, there would be other ways of making money, which is good. So th that is a good shout as well. Like diversifying the ways that you make money is definitely a good shout uh, which is the whole reason that I do that you know and and also there will be lulls in what's coming in and what's on the workbench that's true of I think any private practitioner uh, except maybe the really 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 in demand ones that there will just be times when there's nothing on your workbench and you might not necessarily be worrying about what you're going to do for money next month but that's when you pull out a course and go hey we're, we're going to do a refresh on object handling or you know whatever it is that you can offer like in your local area or online or whatever you'd like to do can we talk about retirement <laughs> yes we can <laughs> I strongly suspect that you uh know what the answer is going to be <laughs> It is really important to think about what you're going to do, uh, what you're going to do when you get old. Um, I do have a pension. It's not a good one because, but that's mostly because I've been able to work the odd job. And usually in the UK, then that does always come with some sort of pension plan uh, that then the employer sort of pays into for a little bit. Like it comes out of your pay, but like you don't see it sort of. Uh, so technically there is a little bit of money there but not not much that that would not be a particularly good idea to just have that and it's definitely one of my goals to be able to have like another pension plan now that I can pay into actively um, I'm not there yet but it's on my goal of aspirations um, so yeah I don't plan that much for retirement at the moment uh, is the honest answer and this is something that I've talked to to other freelancers and self-employed people about and it's a struggle for a lot of people um you know at least in the, here in the UK it definitely feels like that there is a struggle for a lot of people um but people sometimes sort of save for a rainy day and that might ultimately become the retirement fund but uh yeah it's it does seem to be a struggle for people um I hope it isn't for everyone but you know it's it's an interesting topic and it is one that we I think we need to talk more about as a sector to be honest yeah, exactly. It seems like from my experience, what I've heard is people usually try to fall into more permanent institutional jobs or teaching roles where they have sort of these structured wages and can plan for retirement. But I haven't heard anyone give a retirement plan for people in the private practice sector. So I agree that we need to talk about it more. And I don't know if this is the case in, in the US, but in the UK, apparently it can be a little bit tricky as a self-employed person to find a pension scheme that sort of 
takes you on because they're sort of geared more towards people in traditional employment so it might just be that if you're if you're the director of something because that's what you are when you run your own company then they they, they might be a little bit "Mm, not really sure about that so it can actually be slightly tricky to find uh, the right sort of pension fund for you isn't impossible though i've had several recommendations so they definitely do exist um yeah very very interesting can we switch to a lighter topic about how you chose the name for your business yes of course (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah so the business i run is called curiosa conservation curiosa is a swedish word uh that means curio or odd thing or bits and bobs uh which i think sort of perfectly summarizes the sorts of things that I work on because they're they're um, you know misc and uh, also because you know it harks back to my Swedish heritage which was really nice so it was really important for me to somehow represent that in in my company name but I did sort of look at how other people name their businesses if they're in private practice and often it's you know like their name uh, here it will be limited or you know or conservation services or something and the, the sort of the issue is that I don't really like my name. Also, I have to spell it to every single person all the time anyway. And I'm like, I don't really want to do that to myself. <laughs> and also, I sort of hope to change it when I get married eventually. Uh, and I'm like, oh, I can't really be bothered with that. So what can I do instead that isn't my name? And it, sort of, unfortunately, most people went with their names or their initials. That those, those are sort of the two really common ones I've noticed is that you do those two things. And then there was like a small subset of people who were doing interesting things like mythical, mythical beasts or um, interesting objects. But also usually they picked something from their specialism because they have a specialism. So it will be something, I don't know, rebate conservation or I don't know, ornate chair conservation. I don't know. But since I don't really have a specialism, that sort of ruled out that whole class of thing as well. So I was like, well, it's going to have to be something weird then. It's going to have to be weird. And honestly, the runner up to this one, that is, it was down to these two options in the end. It was either Curiosa Conservation, which sounds quite mature, or it was going to be something that is completely me, but I didn't really think people wanted to put on their invoices. And it was going to be Fat Dragon Conservation because I'm, I am a round, bubbly person and dragons are Welsh. So I sort of wanted it to be Fat Dragon Conservation. But then people did point out, people probably don't really want to put that on their business invoices. And I'm like, you're right, fine. And Curiosity Conservation is great. So I am happy with my choices. But I just thought you'd be amused by the story of how I ummed and ahed and I really wanted to be a fat dragon. I mean, imagine how cute the logo would be. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, that would be so adorable. Oh my God. No, that's true. Even in the States as well, it seems like people usually use the first and last name or their initials. I haven't seen too many businesses sort of stray from that model. So I saw your business and I was like, oh, something yeah. different. It's very nice. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> I'd like to go back because I've missed insurance. So, oh yeah, let's talk insurance. Yes. So you mentioned that you rent your current workspace. Do you have ins- like renter's insurance for that space? Is there a special plan you need to cover the type of work that you do? Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So in the UK, I found it surprisingly difficult to figure out what sort of insurance people had or needed to have. People did have sort of great general advice for businesses, if you see what I mean, like general business insurance yes. was sort of really easy to get a grip on. But when it was 
what do conservatives do that got a bit weirder? Also because people don't really want to give you advice on it in case it's wrong. So people don't really want to recommend people to you. And it's like, I understand, but also having no idea is the worst. So I managed to get a couple of people to give me some names of insurers. And then I tried ringing them up, but I immediately alarmed them by trying to explain what I do. And like, I just didn't get to talk to the right person is what happened because clearly they do insure conservatives because I've talked to people with insurance from these firms, but Mm -hmm. I just couldn't really convey to them or talk to the right um, the, the right person about what I needed. It just wasn't working. So what, what I did in the end was I found an insurance broker that specializes in people in the art world and conservatives for some of the people that they served. And there I got to talk to a very nice man who understood exactly what I do for a living and could talk to insurers for me. And I filled out a really extensive form about all of the things that I do and all the things that I need. And included in that, for me at least, was contents insurance which is what you you do when you're renting a space here basically uh so if you know if there's a fire and you know the lab burns down uh then you know i I will be able to claim for you know all of my lost tools that are now little lumps of metal somewhere um you know like i would i would have a way of fixing that so you know that it does do everything that i need so it's sort of it's it's sort of a set menu in that it gives you uh, things like liability uh, insurance and public in- is it public indemnity. There are so many difficult insurance words. Um, and it's sort of a set menu, but it is tailored a bit to what I do and the stuff that I have. So in my case, I sort of supplied an inventory of all of the things that I have and approximate values for if I needed to replace them as new. And the hardest bit was arguably trying to figure out how valuable people's things are on average. <laughs> that I look after sometimes people don't tell you or they're really low value and sometimes they're really high value (laughs) and it really varies you know like but also they're they're still priceless to them because just because a teddy bear wouldn't cost more than I don't know 20 pounds to replace that's not your grandma's teddy bear so it isn't really replaceable like that so it's surprisingly difficult to fill out the form but once I've managed to do that with quite a lot of help from the nice man as insurance brokers it was totally sorted and it was all fine. Mm. And, you know, if you're struggling and you're in the UK, then I would definitely try to find an insurance broker um, because honestly, that was the best way to, of making sense uh, of it from my point of view. And I'm really happy with it. I mean, it's expensive, but, you know, it's going to be specialist insurance because <laughs> we do something really weird. <laughs> Very true. So it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, there's a limited amount of coverage for objects that you're working on that come into your studio. That's sort of an average of all the objects that you work on, which is so difficult to to try and guess. Yeah. So it was sort of asking me questions like, um, how many objects have you had in the last year? What was the maximum value of that? And what was the average value? So we're still trying to pinpoint sort of what sort of range it is, which is helpful in theory but it's probably easier for some things than for others but with social history and stuff that's you know has a lot of sentimental value but not necessarily monetary value that's that gets surprisingly difficult quite quickly with anything insurance related there's sort of um upper limits for like how much it will cover um so for example i would imagine that there might be jobs i can't do if they ask for like a really high 
sort of insurance ceiling. Um, but, you know, it hasn't really come up. I don't really feel like it hinders me in what I do because I feel like I'm covered for more than enough for what I normally do. So it's absolutely fine. <laughs> Can we pivot slightly to health insurance? Um, do you have a health insurance plan that you purchase? Is that, does that come out of your taxes? I'm so clueless. Oh, no, uh, it actually comes out of my taxes, essentially. Um, UK taxes, it sort of works that it all goes into one big pot and it gets redistributed. And uh, a good chunk of it goes towards the NHS, which is the National Healthcare Service, which means that all of that is just taken care of. So I don't need to worry about having additional health insurance i was a bit worried that might be the case after brexit because i'm not a british citizen so i'm a european citizen which is an interesting journey um but actually as it turns out it's fine because my taxes pay for the nhs just like anyone else's so they were more than happy for me to not need additional health insurance which was good so here you don't need to worry about that but you might need to worry about it if you're from outside of the European Union possibly I'm not that clued up on how immigration works. Can you describe your support system and where do you go if you have a question about a certain treatment? Oh so I would say that I mean quite a lot of us actually just you know people I used to go to university with like you know they have interesting specialists and stuff now or um, or are generalists like myself still uh, and you know we have a diverse sort of pool of uh, experiences between us uh, so often I can go to one of them and if they don't know they will know someone who knows which is quite nice so again it's sort of grapevine really um, but you know I used to I harness the power of social media quite a lot so if I don't if I need an answer and I do not know who to go to, I quite often just ask. It might not be like hyper specific, um, but, you know, if I just need to pick someone's brains, I might go, has anyone tried treating a one of those old timey cameras? It looks like bellows. Uh, has, has anyone worked on one of those? I would love to pick your brains. And, you know, usually someone comes through or has an idea or can give me an email of someone. It happened recently because uh, someone uh, asked me to work on a chandelier and I'd never done a chandelier, but in theory, I can work on glass and metal. So I was like, if I get some extra input, I think it might be a yes, but I'm going to go find some extra input um, because that's the thing. Like you've got to know your limits, but sometimes it's also fun to try something that's just stretching you that little bit, that's flexing something new. And that's always fun as well. You know, it's got to be safe, which is why you ask for help or why you have people to go to. So, um, and I like that the conservation community is supportive enough to allow for people to sort of exchange knowledge like that and sort of talk about, you know, like, and what's it like working on one of those? What's, what's a good approach? Um, how do you keep track of all the little bits once you've disassembled something? Um, you know, just like, you know, just like quite lighthearted things sometimes, like how much space do you do you need for something like that? Like, what kind of trays did you use? What, like, just like little things like that. It, it can be so nice and a nice insight into how other people work as well, which is just the loveliest thing. I mean, it's a great excuse just to talk to someone about their work, which is really nice. Absolutely. I love how supportive this community is and that you are really able to, if you ask most of the time, find a good answer and meet people and have really great conversations with them. It's one of the things I really love about this field. Are there any um, organizations or places that you went to help support your business when you were starting out? I mean, I have to say one of my 
best moves has been to get an accountant. <laughs> I'm really, really glad I did that. That was definitely one of those number one tips from other conservatives in private practice was, dear Lord, get an accountant. Uh, either that or just be willing to put in serious work into understanding way beyond budgeting. Uh, and I was like, I don't think I want to do that. So I'm going to get an accountant. Which, which was a good move. Um, but other than that, it turns out that, um, well, I mean, a lot of places have this, at least here in the UK, is that there's there was a local business hub. So one that's trying to support local businesses and uh, especially new starters and stuff like that. So it was a place I could go for free advice, which is awesome, and some free training as well. They did quite a lot of bits and bobs like... Um, you know, basic bookkeeping or how to use social media effectively and all sorts of stuff like that. And it was really, really useful. So that was a really good place to go for sort of general business advice. Uh, just like, what can I do to improve my business plan? That sort of thing. Like, you know, they are more than happy to help with that. So, you know, it might be that you have some sort of resource like that near you. And that is well worth exploring because even if they don't understand the nitty gritty of what you do, they can still help in a general sense uh, and they can point you towards resources that you didn't even know existed. <laughs> and it also, I've been surprised by how different sometimes it is by region, even by state or um, by area, like how, how many little, you know, laws or legislations in different states will affect the type of business that you need to do, what forms you need to submit. Oh, so yes, yeah. yeah, regional and local help can be crucial at times. I know before we began the podcast officially, we talked a little bit about how you recently hosted a student. How was that mentorship experience? Oh, it was really good. I hadn't had a student placement before, but I had an apprentice when I worked somewhere. So it wasn't completely new, but it was new um, because I hadn't done it sort of in a, you know, as a self-employed person. That was really interesting. Just scheduling it in was terrifying because I couldn't guarantee there was anything on the workbench at the time when I was going to host him. Um, but it did turn out to to go well anyway as it turns out there wasn't anything particularly pressing on the workbench but we did go through a lot of other things I really wanted to uh, give him loads of uh, hand skills and practical experience so uh, we treated a bunch of stuff that's like from like my my grandmother's uh, you know like old textiles and stuff like that things that are genuinely precious and simulate the sort of experience that you might have um you know dealing with a private client because ultimately yes in this instance technically the client is me I guess but you know you, you're dealing with someone's old things and you know they have uh, an emotional attachment to them and you need to be aware of that and you should be aware that you know maybe maybe you need to negotiate something like well maybe they don't want all the stains out of this teddy bear because maybe they're really important to them and like the sorts of questions that you need to ask your client and sort of the negotiating the sort of emotional waters of you know just what is precious to you about this thing and what is it that you would want me to do to this um so I think it was a really good experience you touched on something that I think is very important, which is how far to push a treatment. I know in my personal experience, sometimes there are clients who want 100% restored surface. It looks brand new. But you also mentioned sometimes there's use value or emotional value to an object in its use. So can you just talk a little bit more about how far you take treatments depending on those different factors and how do you know sometimes when to stop? 
I mean, this is when it's so important to talk to your client. And sometimes they might not have thought about it at all because they might not sort of be ready to communicate that or they just haven't really considered that maybe they don't want this completely washed or they don't want this to be completely new. And it's only once you start sort of teasing that out, it can be, you know, like sitting down and having a coffee together, you know, okay, so I've got the item now, it looks lovely, but would you really want your granddad's rugby shirt to be dyed properly red again? Or do you want it to be sun faded because it's what it looks like after use? Does it need to look pristine because then it looks like he hasn't worn it? And then you might be presenting them with some options that they hadn't really thought about, that they want the shirt to look nice, but actually they do want to know that he used it. So it's, you know, it is these sort of quite emotional things sometimes where it's about what they want out of it, what the use case is. Because sometimes, you know, I might recommend things that I wouldn't necessarily recommend to a museum because it's a different use case they're meant to get the most out of the thing and you know like that might look very different in a museum setting than it does in a domestic setting or in a private collection like they are they can be incredibly different things which can be tricky but they're sort of the most interesting conversations (laughs) when I was learning what it meant to be conservator and watching sort of these online lectures of very impressive and very sexy treatments of Um, objects and institutions, it seemed to be primarily these very damaged, discolored objects that were being brought back to a more restorative aesthetic condition. And it's so interesting to me that that's not always the best course of treatment. And I think it is part of working with private clients who are working with objects they're emotionally tied to where that, that use and that wear sometimes is valuable and needs to be honored within the object, which just, again, isn't something that I was always aware of or was represented when I was learning about the field, especially when it was coming from an institution where maybe that wear and use didn't have that emotional aspect with the object. I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it does come come down to what is the story? Like, what's the story of the object and what does that mean to the person or the institution that has it you know it's because um you know someone came to me with um a a world war uniform and uh, it was moth damaged because you know moths they do love woolen things uh and it was a case of okay so you want the moth damage dealt with it but presumably you don't want it to look pristine because I can see there are some tears here that look like they're from use and this, you know, like you did just tell me that, you know, he got shot uh, and he pulled through, but that's clearly where that went in. Like, I'm just going to make it clear. You don't want that touched, do you? Not, not trying to impose that on them, but just sort of making really sure that we're talking about the same thing and that not all damage is equal because it isn't. And sometimes, you know, is it even damage? Is it just object history? Is it can be so different? And again, I think I think it is a slightly different world when it's maybe a painting because we have such different expectations of that. But then I was talking to someone who works on really modern paintings and how sometimes you know materials are chosen not to last or to change color over time or, and you know then you're talking about artist intent and all that stuff. So oh, we work in a fascinating field, guys. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> 
We really do. I know. Uh, so my most recent experience is in a contemporary and modern studio oh, so cool. and just listening to lectures of people talking about artists who intentionally make art to watch it degrade mm-hmm. over time, which is something that just makes my skin crawl and like <laughs> is very against my nature as, you know, a conservator in training. So often like artist intent is, is discussed when we're talking about conservation ethics and what does it mean when the artist intent goes directly against our ethics and values, I think is a really interesting new issue that seems to be arising in contemporary conservation. So I'm interested to see how conservators will handle that in the future. That's so fascinating yeah, to me. It's like a do not resuscitate before art. Work life balance. Do you often find yourself kind of getting caught up in treatments? Um, and how have you sort of set up a healthy work life and set some boundaries for yourself if you start to feel yourself getting pulled into your work? I did worry about this initially when we, when I set up the the company, cause I was like, oh, I'm going to get lost in here. Like, I'm just going to, going to be doing this all the time, but it has actually helped me being in a shared space because um, it does have limits on how long you can stay. They don't kick you out, but it's more of a, the building will eventually close. Uh, so I am, I do have to be a little bit mindful of like how long I'm there and it has helped give me some structure but not so much that I feel stifled by it because I've definitely worked in institutions where it's like, well, you're in at nine and you get literally kicked out before five because at five we are locking up and the alarm goes on and it's like, oh Jesus. Okay. No, that's not great. That isn't really how I like to work. There's more leeway here, but still structure in a way that works for me. So I mean, I set my own hours. I tend to like work like 11 to seven, that sort of thing. Right. So that's when I do my best work and I just know that, but it has helped me having the separation of having it somewhere other than my home that has been really good. If anything, I find myself thinking about work too much rather than being at work too much. That's the big challenge for me is letting go of just thinking about it. Like, well, I should send that email or oh, I really must do that later. It does help to have a commute as well, actually. Uh, my commute is walking, uh, so it's not that bad, but it's it's a good 40-minute walk in each direction. So that still means it's an hour and a half every day-ish. And uh, but it helps clear my head. It means that I sort of leave it, like I leave it outside when I'm when I step step into my house, it doesn't have to still linger, which is really good. What excites you or motivates you within your business? What keeps you going? Oh, it's always that it's a new problem to solve. I know that people are like, oh, problems, but I'm like, this is falling apart in a new way. And oh my God, what is happening here? I want to understand it. I want to see if I can slow it down or what we can do. Uh, I love that. That is all I'm about is the creative problem solving of conservation. And it's where it's at. Like I had this (laughs) sort of collapsed early football. So like it's made of leather, right? It's like, it used to have a rubber bladder in it that's long since decayed and you know so it's collapsed in on itself and it, it's just a little husk now what do I do with that it needs to look like a football again that was a fascinating thing because I knew what to do with the leather that's fine like there's there are definitely ways of sort of rejuvenating it and sort of you know like making it more flexible again and making it look like a football that wasn't a problem but how do you keep its shape like you can't have a rubber bladder in it. You can't inflate it. 
I had so many different ideas of how I could possibly do this. I mean, those sorts of things are really fun to think about because I was like, can I put something inside that deploys like mechanically and that puts even pressure you know, like almost like those toys that you had as children, you know, that's sort of like it starts as a little ball and you pull something and it sort of expands out and it sort of looks like a weird mechanical ball suddenly. I, I was like, can I do that? Uh, because I've seen people do amazing things inside cartonage with like uh, mechanical Lego and stuff like that, where they'd use that to deploy inside something to support it from the inside amazing stuff and I was like can I do that and in the end that was too complicated the, like the opening wasn't big enough to insert anything and I was like I, oh, I, I could put stuffing inside but stuffing isn't rigid enough like it's it's not gonna work it's not gonna hold its shape and then in the end like I, I did sandbags I did like millions of little tiny sandbags uh and and like so they're shut so it's heavier but it held its shape beautifully and it had like a core of like foam so it wasn't all sand but like you know it was I just love thinking about those things like how do you get into like an extremely small thing and expand it so it's equally supported on all sides that sort of thing is like sort of stuff of dreams isn't it just it's a little bit of engineering inside a conservation project I love those things they're so fun (laughs) My next question is a little darker. Um, Did you experience a national financial crisis or event that impacted your business? I feel like the theme of being a millennial who's like out of university is just the constant carnage and like the sirens in the distance of like, there's another recession. (laughs) I was like, okay, great. (laughs) Does it ever go well? We're in recession now and inflation is at a 40-year high and all of that stuff right so you know it's maybe not great and like the way that I know it it impacts me is that I know that I won't have private clients for a bit like that's just not going to happen until things stabilize people can't afford food they can definitely not afford conservation right so I know that that puts a pin in that it means that I can come back to that when things are better but it does you know in a really bleak way it means that I don't get to work with as many people which is sad so instead, I can work with institutions and I can focus on that side. But, you know, it does give me focus. So there is that. So I know where I can put my effort instead. But it is also, of course, immensely sad because, you know, people people just just can't really afford anything. So it sucks. Um, you know, like that's that's not great. So, yeah, like, you know, these sorts of things do, do have an impact. And certainly, you know, the pandemic was also interesting. Uh, you know, obviously, a lot of things that, you know, usually I do like exhibition services and stuff they weren't needed because there were no exhibitions nothing was open if anything you know when things reopened it was more of a of a sort of a little growth spurt in terms of business because then people were like oh bums we have mold everywhere <laughs> it's like oh yeah it's because no one checked on it for several months uh yeah and that sort of thing right so you know like yeah, I guess with rain comes sunshine and etc. But it does mean that, you know, it is, I know that I won't really have private clients for a little bit, which is a shame, but it is what it is. It feels like when things go wrong nationally, if there's a financial crisis, conservation almost has this pro of being able to target clients for wealthy collections, institutions like that as a fallback. But I, I just personally often find that interacting with private clients who have objects that maybe aren't you know, monetarily valuable, but are emotionally valuable is really rewarding. Not that, you know, other projects aren't necessarily, but yeah, they're they're all, they're all rewarding, but they're just differently rewarding. And yeah, so yeah, you're completely right. (laughs) 
What is an unlikely but necessary part of running your own business that you think listeners should know about? Ooh, uh, trust your gut instinct. <laughs> I feel like not enough people tell you that, you know, you've got to listen to that. Like, don't second guess yourself. Like, genuinely do what feels right. Because um, ultimately you can, you know, pick apart any decision that you make. You know, you can, but it's probably not that healthy to do that. So listen to your gut instinct. That's really important because you know you and you know your skill set and ultimately, you know, go for it. Do you have any other pieces of advice for people who want to start their own business or explore objects conservation? Oh, do it because it's amazing. Uh, <laughs> both both of them. Just always be making connections. It, don't be like the slimy guy who's always like talking about his LinkedIn profile. That's not where I'm at. I just mean, make friends. Like just you'd be surprised how far you can get on just being nice to people like just use that network that that stuff can be really really important like it's it's one of the reasons that I could even get the space that I rented is that I actually had a crowdfunding campaign because I needed to get the money for the space pretty much overnight and I did not know how to do that so I I asked friends and old colleagues for help and it happened and you know that is entirely down to them but, you know, if, you know, if I hadn't known them, that wouldn't have happened. So, you know, just try to make friends. Thank you for your honesty and your openness. I, I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for taking the time out of your work day to talk to me. This has been so incredibly insightful. Oh, no problem. You were an absolute delight. You're doing so well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. For more information on the podcast, please visit theprivateproject.com. On the website, you can view a complete episode list, submit your feedback, and donate to support the project. All donations go directly to the interviewees, who take time out of their busy schedules to talk to me. This also incentivizes those not in my network to be interviewed and allows me to bring more diverse content to you. Thank you for your support. Hello, everyone.